You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories, their nuanced conversations, and forward thinking, and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing, but not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Hello, Fade Gray listeners. What up? This is Seth, and I'm coming in. Come on in, <laughs> Seth. Come on I in. I say that. <laughs> With another episode of Fade to Gray, alongside Chris and Omar. Hello. And we are That's me. here to interview a good friend of mine that I met when I was in graduate school uh, in Springfield. He comes by the name of Samson Latchison. How are you doing, Samson? What up? Really good. Kind of have a bad hair day, but other than that. Oh, I think your head looks great. I need to shave mine, to be honest. That's why you guys met and became friends. You're both bald. Right? <laughs> I wasn't bald then, I don't think. Come on. <laughs> Come on now. Well, anyway, Samson, I am so honored to have you on because when we met in Springfield, um, I got to learn a little bit about your story. And I think that your story is very impactful. Um, but before we jump into everything, I just kind of want to talk about how are you doing today? How are things going? Good, good, good. Uh, man, my, in- my inner introvert is really enjoying quarantine. I hate to admit that, but same. It's for real. Yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice break from reality and from society. Actually, it's not bad, right? Yeah. So, Samson. We got that you're in Springfield, Missouri. Yes. Is is that where you grew up? Um, tell, us, tell us about your life. Grew up in St. Louis, and, and uh, I came here to Springfield via college at Southwest Baptist University in a really small town called Bolivar, Missouri, which is about 30 miles away from here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how was it like growing up? Well, um, I'm a child of the later 60s. So uh, uh, it was kind of a bizarre situation. I was I was kind of in a lower middle class family, uh, born into a lower middle class family that came here from the south. Uh, mom had about a fourth grade education. Dad about a sixth grade education. She was from uh, Brent, Alabama. He was from Monroe, Louisiana. And they were just trying to uh, make a life for themselves. I'm the youngest of seven children. Wow. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, and, and I remember being raised in a, well, when I was really small, uh, my neighbors were white. Uh, it was, it was uh, kind of an interracial neighborhood, very integrated. Um, and then, unfortunately, in 1968, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, things changed pretty quick. Um, the young people in our neighborhood that were African-American, uh, many of them became a part of Black Panthers. It was a way of buying into self-empowerment and um, things went a little bit crazy uh, in the neighborhood. Many of the Jewish businesses were burned to the ground. Huh. Uh, wow. Food. Um, white flight, I hate to admit it, it was not necessarily because of uh, racial prejudice from from whites in inner cities. I know in our case, they were running for safety. And so uh, things changed pretty quick in my neighborhood. And I was five. 
Wow. So, yeah. Outside I bet that was a pretty scary time, huh? Yeah, it really was. Really crazy. Really crazy. About the same time my dad, uh, he had lead poisoning from the lift factory he worked at. Jeez. In Granite wow. City, Illinois. And uh, he was no longer able to work. Um, and so we were plummeted into abject poverty pretty quickly. So all these things were happening simultaneously. Yeah. How did your parents respond? Um, you said there there was a big Black Panther presence, I should say, in your neighborhood, in your community. Um, is it something that uh, you found was helpful that you kind of bound together, found like safety and comfort in in that, or is it something your parents kind of stared away from because saw like the negative side of things? Oh, definitely, they stared away from it. I mean, they were people of faith, and so that was our security was the church pretty much um, in the inner city. That that was what kept my parents going. I mean, they were very, 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 very Pentecostal. Okay. Uh, and so, so much of what we, we believed in was rooted within uh, faith, very much so. But a very legalistic form of faith. Uh, so, yeah, but still, it was... It was the undergirding of our existence. What sure. denomination was it? Church of God in Christ. Okay, yeah, right on. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I was AG for a while, so okay. I actually <laughs> got my, my license to preach with the Assemblies of God. And Church of God in Christ is the basically brother or sister church to Assemblies of God. A lot of the exact same beliefs and tenets and doctrines. I think the only difference is the speaking in tongues part where AG says that's right. the on, only evidence and church of God Christ is a little bit more open-minded, but yeah, that was, yeah, that's a whole nother story with Azusa street and sp- split, split off just because of racial differences. Other than that, they pretty right. much believe the exact same thing. So yeah. Yeah. Seriously. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like growing up was a very stressful and scary time overall. Um, how do you feel that impacted you? Um, I was very fearful of everything. I mean, I was just very insecure. I was just, um, really not, not a happy child, uh, growing up. Uh, and some of that came from the fact too, that very, very, very early on, I knew I was, I was gay. Um, and something in my behavior, one of my first memories was my mom, uh, discovered that and her words to me were, um, People that are that are homosexuals are doomed to hell, and and they will burn in hell as long as God lives. It is the unforgivable sin. So, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. Yeah. I thought blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Right, but yeah, she just really didn't like the idea. So, so I think, <laughs> I think she, yeah, added that. You know, Samson, what was it like to hear your mother say to you? that something that was ingrained in you that you were born with was the unforgivable sin. And how, and how did you know that you were gay? You said you, you pretty much knew without a doubt. So tie that in. Oh my God. As long as I could remember, I've been attracted to men. Oh, uh, everything about men. And, and it, it was something that, that became obvious when I was very, very, very small. Hmm. And, uh, and so I think, I think out of embarrassment first, uh, and then just out of uh, sheer prejudice for homosexuals, my mom said that to just 
try to nix the behavior in the bud as quickly as possible. But that became the all-consuming mantra of my life, pretty much, was the fact that I was unforgivable. Wow. That's horrible. At what age did you start to realize that you were experiencing same-sex attraction and, and kind of this confusion kind of set in? When did that happen? Uh, I, I think it was like six or seven. And I was really sure. And at the same time, I was very, very sure that it was not normal, quote unquote. You know what I mean? I knew that it was not. And so I tried to hide it as, as much as possible. But I mean, there was nothing about me that said anything different. I've always spoken the way I do. I've, I've always behaved the way I do. I've always had the, uh, the, uh, traits that I do. And so in the ghetto, in the inner city, especially during the time of the uh, late 60s, early 70s, that was just not the uh, presentation of an African-American boy growing up in the ghetto. Right. Yeah, I imagine that was a nightmare between knowing that you have this sexual attraction. Yeah, your church you go to is telling you that it's a sin, you're going to hell. And then your community, your friends that you go go to school with, are basically you know probably threatening violence at that point in the in the sixties and seventies. So Heck yeah, and, and so there was yeah. there was no quote unquote safe space for Samson exactly. and man, not even at home with your parents. That's that's rough. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely was. And at the same time, my mom, due to just financial difficulties, uh, my dad not being quote unquote, able to help her raise seven kids in this dangerous environment, my mom became more and more uh, violent, more and more domineering, doing whatever she had to do to gain control uh, over us, and at the same time, try to keep us safe. So... And your other brothers and sisters, were they uh, experiencing anything like what you were experiencing? To some degree, but they were much more able to adapt. A couple of my siblings were just quiet and and uh, just kind of introverted naturally. So, and and as a female, those two of my sisters, uh, they were safe in that environment. But as a boy, being an introvert and with tendencies, uh, quote unquote, what would be viewed as feminine tendencies, uh, pretty much, I was an obvious pick out to pick on how'd your father handle that you talked a lot about your mother's reactions like uh did your father just kind of back her play or did he have a different opinion at all my dad was just not very involved in my life in particular at all uh there was a part of him i think that was embarrassed to me um and 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 i i I forgot to throw this into sexual abuse uh was something that happened very early with me to the night I was baptized uh, at five, I was uh, sexually molested by the deacon who should have been dressing me for baptism. Wow! And was that was that kind of like your first like taste of I mean of any probably of anything sexual at all? I mean that's a young age. Do you think that that yeah. probably had a big impact and like where you ended up? I I don't think so because. I mean, literally, as far back as I can remember, even before that, I can remember 
um, having behaviors that were somewhat inappropriate. And what I mean by that is uh, my my second memory is of praying to be saved in church as a little boy standing there and crying, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. That was born out of my mom catching me and whatever behavior I was I was uh, told that's the unforgivable sin and you're burning hell for it. And so, so yeah, so all those things are pretty much uh, around the same time. Think of a five-year-old mind being told that's the unforgivable sin, you're going to burn in hell for that, but then the day you're getting baptized, an elder in your church, a deacon in your church is or is performing those acts on you. Like, how does that, yeah. how, how does a five-year-old mind even compute like that at all? Yeah, I had a really weird dual approach with God. I both feared him and and loved him at the same time, you know, because I was raised that God is love. But at the same time, I do remember actually saying to God, you can't protect me in your own house. And so I, mm. I had a real love-hate relationship with God. I'll bet, yeah. That happened at age five. How long... How long did you keep that a secret? Um, man, I was in my 30s before I ever told my mom. Yeah. Specific. She always asked me about it because the, the situation was my dad walked in while the deacon still had a, a switchblade held in my throat. He had he held the switchblade to my throat while he was touching Whoa. me inappropriately. And what so the fuck? My pants up in time before my dad walked in on that. And so, so yeah. Dad, holy shit. That's like next level too. Yeah. That's not even like, Oh my God. That wasn't just abuse. That was threat of violence. Yeah. yeah. He had a switchblade to your throat. This guy, I'm sure. Five? Surely but, he yeah. went to jail or something, right? Oh no. Cause that, I never told anyone. Yeah. I mean, but you my, can't be the only kid he did that to. And you would think so. But again, 60s, 70s. I mean, to be really honest with you, a lot of times if we'd gone to tell someone as kids, the kids, the, the parents wouldn't have believed us. Adults wow. wouldn't have accepted, you know, our words, mm-hmm. especially with a deacon of the church, you know. Yeah. For times, you know, and children weren't to be heard from, you know, we were to be quiet. From age five to 30. Yeah. That is that. That's a long time oh. to hold that kind of trauma and psychological pain. Sure. In what ways? I mean, I'm just. I mean, we're talking about it, but you know, how did all of this affect you? Like, how? Because um, I'm assuming that was very much wrapped up in a feeling of shame and guilt and just self-perpetuated there's something wrong with you yeah how the hell are you still in church <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i that's we i that's where i want to head i want to run down that path because i mean for a lot of people that kind of experience would completely wreck their faith their hope in humanity like all kinds of stuff so let, let's talk about that impact um, at the same time, though, I must say, I mean, my mom, who was very 
very abusive physically and, and emotionally. She had a crazy faith in God. And, and growing up in such abject poverty uh, before well, civil rights uh, was just put into effect 1968. So us getting able to receive some kind of compensation through Social Security or, or welfare or whatever, it was really slow coming. And mm -hmm. uh, to be really honest with you, that there were many times when I saw two eggs put in a skillet and my mom pray, God, let these two eggs feed nine mouths. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm not lying about this. I saw that literally one day in particular where she cracked two eggs and she said, you fed 5,000. I just need nine. And so please help me with these eggs, multiply these eggs. And two eggs somehow fed nine people. I mean, there were, there were innumerable times like that, that my mom praying, setting the table, when there was no food, someone would happen to knock at the door at 5.30 with groceries. Innumerable wow. things like that happened. And so there was this side of me that saw this invisible God be in action and doing things to help us. You know, uh, many times we were, we were protected in, in very dangerous situations in a neighborhood that had just gone really chaotic. And, and so I, there was this part of me that was just like, I know you're there, but what the freak are you doing? You know, and so I add to that my dad would would molest me consistently every Saturday from the age of 10 till I was 12. Holy shit. So, yeah. So, because, I mean, to, to offset kids who were, who were being bullies to me at school, I came up with this idea to no longer bathe. And so my dad at 10 is just like, you stink. I'm going to start bathing. And so from 10 to 12, he bathed me, but he would also... Yeah, it touched me inappropriately. So, so yeah, so that was all thrown in the mix as well. So there was definitely, uh, I mean, I'll be very honest with you, during, during those times and uh, on those Saturdays, I would have a usual session of, after my dad would leave the, the restroom of just cussing at God. Uh, he was the only person I used the F word toward. And uh, and that's kind of how I felt toward God. But then, same time, you know, we had hymn books in the bathroom. Bathrooms had great acoustics. I'd sing a hymn from the from the hymn book, you know, as this little kid, because I still, in some way, would really wanted God to like. I I thought if I could could at least try to get Him on my side, things would get better, you know. So I think in in some ways that split me. Um, down the middle, emotionally, um, psychologically. And so I, I, I had what later was diagnosed as bipolar traits, you know, because I, I literally was, was two people. I was, I was trying to please God. I was trying to please my mom. I was trying to be a, be a real quote unquote man. At the same time, my, my body, my mind betrayed me before, uh, I ever even made cognitive decisions sexually.
Well, I mean, not only your body betrayed. I mean, it sounds like the people that you trusted in your life betrayed you as well before you ever were making those decisions for yourself. And oh, heck yeah. Um, do you think with your father, this is something that like was more of an abuse of power sort of thing, dominance, or do you think that it was also like your father had clearly had homosexual tendencies as well? Um, but like they say a lot of times, like in the Catholic church, it has nothing to do with that as much as it does, like just the power dynamic. Um, what did you feel more coming from your father? Like, is like, was he struggling with it himself? Like, did he, could you tell? That's, I kind of felt that in a way, but it was so odd that my dad outside of that, that, that moment on Saturdays when he would touch me inappropriately was not someone who would touch me or be very responsive to me in any way. It's particularly me. Uh, my, my two older brothers are very, very tall and very manly men. And so it was the only attention my, my father gave me. Um, my mom, my mom dove over me constantly. And there's another dynamic in my oldest sister was the only other one that he touched inappropriately. That, that was my next and question. So you siblings, you have discussed this as you've gotten older and kind of like, no. Yeah, like, but I didn't know about my sister. My sister didn't know about me until my mom, my mom died at, uh, when I was in my late thirties. But we had no idea that we were the only two. So, so there's no did, way. Did your desire to be close to your father because everyone has that inherent desire to be loved by their dad, right? Did that desire almost make it seem like, I, I okay, so Samson, I'll share something personal. Um, in high school, I interacted with someone and there was, he came on to me, but in the end, I viewed it positively because he was popular and I felt like I was finally accepted by the guys. Right. And so my question is like in your dad doing this, did you start to almost, do you see what I'm saying? Like yes. look at that as something good because that was your only way to really receive love from him was in doing that. And did that mess with you psychologically? It was so hard because at the same time, my dad was an embarrassment to me because he was, he, he always struggled with being lead poisoned. He was always sick. He was always weak. He was always, um, he, he struggled with, with being able to hold anything in his hand and, and he shuffled when he walked, you know, and so my dad was never someone I was, I wasn't necessarily proud of either, you know, and so it, it was very difficult in any way to um, appropriate my dad as being someone in my mind that I wanted to be like at all, you know? Um, so it's almost like you didn't really even crave the attention from your dad. No. Gotcha. No, I gotcha. Really, I really didn't. Yeah. No. Wow. That's rough, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, I don't, some, 
parts of your story, Samson, just thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing. And, um, I, sometimes I don't know what else to say, but just sorry, man. Like Jesus, like, sorry. Oh, I appreciate that. The, the crazy thing was though, when I look back, there were those people all along my, my childhood that at least tried to impart love and acceptance. They saw something in me. They saw the abuse, they saw the hurt, and they tried. I mean, uh, I can think of a, a, a young couple, Fred and Doris um, Atkins, uh, when I was... Those sound like great church names, right. Fred and Doris Atkins. <laughs> I think we all, had, we, all, we all had our Fred and Doris Atkins in our church. Shout out I, to you, Fred. But, yeah, but they were just... They were they were college students, you know. They they were college graduates. They were they were attractive. They were you know they were good people, and they they really saw me as a child that that needed support. And so I just remember them buying me my first Bible, and, and they would try to invite me over for dinner. Of course, my mom would have no part of it. She wasn't she wasn't uh, really into us getting to know other people very well at all. She never was into that. Uh, I can remember Sunday school uh, superintendent, I guess. She was the, the lady that just supervises Sunday school. And her name was, was Mrs. Young. And and every Sunday, she would try to leave one extra donut just for me and her to have. You know, and she'd sit there and she'd try to talk with me and interact with me uh, before service began. And, uh, and I was just so afraid of adults. I just... I couldn't open up to her. I just remember so many times she would say, Samson, you can tell me anything. How are you doing? Wow. You know? And I just, I just couldn't do it. You know? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. My, my sixth to eighth grade principal, Mr. Laddie was the same way. He meet me at the gate, walk me, walk me to class. You know, he was constantly trying to just interject positivity. Samson, you can do anything. You you're, you're a really great kid. I, I, I love having you here at this school, you know. And so he was just another person. At the same time, though, again, as a, as a child that's in an abusive situation, I just struggled with trusting any of those. And so, but I look back at those people, and they they really gave me um, a reason to keep going. So. Well, well, that's at least there's that balance there. Um, let's let's unpack some of this faith a little bit more, Samson. So, <sighs> wow, you you grew up in the Church of God in Christ, right? Um, are you still are you still a member of the Church of God in Christ? Uh, no, not really. Uh, and in fact, my my parents when I was fourteen, they went back to the Baptist Church. National Baptist Church, Black Baptist Church, which was also very Pentecostal that, that we were raised in. And so, so yeah, so after that, I, I, I went to the Southern Baptist School in Bolivar um, and was really just, just trying to find um, truth. Um, and, 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 and because I believe God was a God of love, but, but to really unpack the truth of who God is, uh, being in college was really helpful to me because then I was able to just really read scriptures for myself, uh, to, to see a God who is a God of love, to see a God who is a God of hope, 
to see the Jesus that was touching the leper's sores before he healed him, to see the Jesus that would hang out with the Roman centurion, blah, 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 on and on. And, and all of a sudden I began to kind of see a more gracious God, but at the same time could not see myself as being um, forgivable. That mantra was still playing out in my head. And so in ministry, I did everything I could <laughs> in a very, really weird, twisted way, getting as many people out of hell as possible in hopes that the numbers would possibly balance out and, and somehow get me in, you know? And so this continued to be a part of my life, honestly, until my 50s. And so, so I want to interject here because this is something that I've come across several times, actually just within the last few weeks in, in talking with people and, and kind of looking at my own life. But we're coming back to this whole idea of as if we have to do something in order to earn God's favor, or we have to do something in order for God to work. Right. And the problem with that is that at its core, at its basis, at its foundation, it's shame. Right. And so much in, in what you're sharing, like it's so much shame based. And that's not, if, if we, <laughs> For for Judeo Christians today who have an active living relationship with their Lord and Savior, that relationship should not be shame based, right? Like at all. Like that is no the relationship opposite. in your life should be shame based. Well, it's the opposite <laughs> of Jesus's message, right. right? And it's just so sad to see that played out in a, in such a manipulative way in people's lives, and, and it's it's really evident in the story you're sharing. Oh, buddy, it was it. It probably was like seven years ago. Uh, a, a young man who, I, who was at that time a really good friend of mine, uh, we had come out of church. And uh, and he looked at me and he said, what is wrong with you? And I said, uh, I, uh, nothing. You know, and he was just like, what are you so sad about? You're sad every time you, you leave church. And I, and I, I said, well, I'm, I'm feeling conviction over the sermon. I mean, it's really. And he was. I mean, you need this lawyer said, bullshit. You feel shame. You feel shame. You don't feel that you, as a gay man, is acceptable in a community of believers. You don't feel like, like you ought to be around. He said, that's wrong. He said, that's so wrong. He, he said, would Jesus say that to you? And, and I, I, I mean, it took me all those years. You know, I, I mean, and, and to be honest with you, there's still sometimes that I have to talk to myself because I can leave church on any given Sunday uh, with a feeling of, man, I want to, I want at least be a good person. You know, uh, when I know, I know that's that's not the real thing, but it was something I just lived. That was a mantra that I lived by for so long. But to be fair, Samson, it's not really your fault. I mean, the whole idea of a, a Jesus who loves gays is a new Jesus for America. Right. It took a long time for for the American church, let's just be honest, to even to even consider that to be an option. It, it, I mean, they're just 
Well, yeah, they just what was it just like two years ago? They just put out a, a letter saying digging in deeper, saying this the is, Nashville whatever uh, statement. Yeah, that was, was like a national last statement year, the year before yeah. the Nashville. Um, so, but what I'm hearing in your story, Samson, is that you still believe. Yeah. What I'm hearing, what I am hearing, is that given everything that you have been through, you still believe, and oh. I want to talk. I want to get to why okay. because because I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not now again. I'm not comparing traumas, right? But I am a Christian man who has gone through my own journey, and it's very hard for me to have trust or have faith in God some days Yes, because people just suck. And everywhere you go, you're going to get a different answer. There's not a clear answer on any of this stuff. Right. And so I want to like, I, and I understand it's, it's people. It's not necessarily God that a lot of this is coming from. Um, but I want to unpack this. What is it that's keeping you believing? How, how are, how are you able to call yourself a Christian after everything that's happened? Man, I the the message of Jesus on the cross. I mean, to be just very honest, honest with you, that message of Jesus dying for my sins and understanding pain and agony. And I'm not I'm not going anywhere as far as like necessarily the sin of homosexuality. I'm talking about sin as in like evil, innate evil. You know, he became that for me. He died for me. Even as a little kid, I would walk to Catholic churches and I'd pray at the crucifix. Not because I'm Catholic, but to see him there suffering meant something to this boy that was suffering. And so that message carried through for me all of my life until I got to a point. Now, I went through the period of after college becoming as promiscuous as I could. Um, and, and because I was so depressed and that was during the era of the AIDS virus. And I don't say this bragging. I have no bragging rights, but I was promiscuous during a time, uh, where the AIDS crisis was very real. And I was with people. I had sex with people that had full blown AIDS to try to take out my own life. And because I was angry with God, um, I've never been HIV positive and I've been tested a billion times. Um, I got nothing on that. I have, I, I, other than, I mean, he wanted me to live. And, and I went through all these years of just, uh, doing the best I could at least to pray, to communicate with him in my heart. Some of that still was just because I thought I was supposed to do it, but there was always, a flicker, a flame, a desire to continue to communicate with him, to stay with him. And then uh, about 10 years ago, I met a pastor who was just so um, willing to love me unconditionally. He was the first pastor that I, that I met that just really uh, wanted to be friends with me, uh, wanted to know about my life. Uh, found as many details as he possibly could about me. And and in that, about that same time, a uh, couple, Stephen Bernard Prophet thought they wanted me to join them in starting a coffee house ministry. And, and, and this was after I 
really big situation where I had an emotional collapse. Um, ended up being diagnosed bipolar 2 with psychotic features, put on all these medications, ended up in inpatient treatment uh, for a time. Um, and I just, I, in fact, let me just, let me just talk about that real quick because it was a Sunday where we were sitting there at this psych facility, adult psych facility. And one of the guys just jumps up and he says, where's your fucking God? There's no God. There's no God. And, and, and he pointed to each one of us and he said, where are your preachers? Where are your pastors? Have any of your pastors come to see you? And, and when he said that, we all shook our heads and he says, see, there's no God. There's no God. And this woman sitting next to me, she says, I want to believe in flannel board Jesus. And this it was really a weird statement to make. We're sitting there in our, our gowns and our slippers and all that stuff. And, and, uh, cause we couldn't even have shoestrings. Uh, most of us mm-hmm. had stylitis, including me when we were admitted. And we said, what are you talking about? And she said, the picture of Jesus that the Sunday school teacher would put on a flannel board and he would be holding kids in his lap. She said, I want to be one of those kids. And for one reason or another, that statement just resonated with me and with all of us sitting there. I don't know who started it because it wasn't me. I mean, I was on Haldol and everything else. I don't even think I could remember the words of Yes, Jesus Loves Me. But someone started, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. And for one reason or another, we all started singing that. And I... I I mean, man, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it because singing that song, that childhood song we all knew was a truth that we all wanted to believe. And I mean, for that moment, which was the darkest moment that I can, I grabbed onto that hope. Yeah, that hope. Yes, Jesus loves me. And, And cried and felt presence. You know, like I've never felt in a church or a revival or a seminar or yada, yada, yada. Uh, but so, yeah, so I, I left that hospital not many days after that. Stephen Byrne asked me to join them in this coffee house ministry. Um, this was when I was not pretending anymore with anybody else. I'd done the youth pastor stint. I'd done the youth evangelist skit. I'd, I'd done the worship leading. You know, gospel singer, all that. I was just like, I'm done. I'm gay. I'm gay and, and I'm just about crazy. You know, what do you think? And so I told uh, Steve Prophet, the guy that did this coffee house, I, I, I said, this is me. I told him the whole story. And he goes, Samson, I didn't know that, but I want you to stay. And, um, then this pastor that I told you about previously, I just began to run those thoughts through my head. You know, Mr. Laddie, Fred and Doris Atkins, Sunday school teacher, this experience in the psych hospital, Jordan, Steve Burner, and, and I'm riding my bike home one night and I literally just, just had a moment where I just was yelling out at God, what do you say? What do you say of me? And I'm thinking this whole time about what my mom would say. You committed the unforgivable sin. You, 
And and as I said, God, what did you say? It was like all the verses that I grew up telling people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Uh, all the first time on that, all those verses started flooding in my mind in just one word. Forgiven. Forgiven. I am forgiven. I am this, I am that, but above all things, I'm forgiven. I'm accepted by I belong. You know? And and I can't you guys, I I got no theological backing. I other than the fact that one word, one freaking word forgiven answered a whole life of hell. And and that's why I'm still here. This is why I still believe. Uh, I mean, good grief. The one thing I know, one thing I preach, man, is I'm loved by God and I'm forgiven. And and so, yeah, so I, I, I live with that. That's. That's been my life. Samson, I would like to say one thing real quick about what you just said. Okay. I'm not a Christian anymore. And I have spoken on this podcast to theologians, um, Pete Inns, Brian Zond, and I've asked them the hard questions that they can't answer. Okay. Your response right now moved me more than any of those guys ever has and actually made me go, you know what? I can't fault this guy for trusting in God because it saved his life. Mm. So I'm done. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, well, you shut Chris up and that is, yeah, that's not a, ever been done. That's a feat. Yeah. That, that's a how feat many episodes sure. do we have out? That's never been done. Damn near a hundred. Yeah. If you count movies that mold me, <laughs> mental, I don't know. anyway, oh. so Samson, thank you for that story. That was that was powerful. I, I there's nothing to really say to to add on or take away from it. All I, one thing that really stood out to me that I thought was interesting, um, the connection to just the simplicity of the Bible verses, like the the simple song "Jesus loves me for this I know," you know, like little ones, you know, like I had to add, you know, some colors every once in a while, but. Um, in brown <laughs> but but um i had a very similar experience i think for one of my more impactful conversion points in my life like it was like just that realization that like he loves me mm-hmm. and and it's the same thing it's like you just like i've deconstructed a lot of my faith um and i've had a lot less shit happen to me in my life than you have mm-hmm. i'm gonna be if i'm gonna be just honest with about it um but that's the thing that I've boiled down to is I just, the, what you said about the faith and the hope, if, if just that alone is worth it. I mean, Heck yeah. there's, there's no answer excuse for your dad or for the deacon or for the thousands of others who have ha- shared similar experiences, you know, in religious organizations and people that they've trusted. But I'm impressed with your willingness to stick with it. I mean, you went to Bible college for all means and, and still, still like full of shame. Like I'm curious about like what, why you chose to go that path. Like, did you thought like, was it just cause you're just trying to get to heaven? Cause you, you, you just, the whole time was just the number game. 
Oh, definitely. Definitely. That was that was right up there. And and to be really honest with you, I just wanted any way out of St. Louis, Missouri. You know, and, and I just happened to see those cars in my guidance counselor's office for what was in Southwest Baptist College, Bolivar, Missouri. And I was just like, bam, I'm gone. <laughs> you know, it's not far, but it's not here, you know. So, yeah. I want to talk about um, the story you shared at the Potter's House. It's the Potter's House, right? I'm saying that correctly, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's actually how I know Samson. I used to go to the Potter's House pretty frequently when I was in graduate is that, school. Is that a like on Grinder? No, that is a Christian uh, is that coffee house. TD Jakes. Okay. Is that Christian? The Grindr? Potter House. We have that here in <laughs> Dallas. Uh, Potter's House, but this has no affiliation with TD Jakes. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. No, no affiliation, Chris. So <laughs> when you shared how. You were up front to say, hey, I'm I'm gay. Might be a little bit crazy. I can identify with all of that. Um, and he said, I don't care. That level of acceptance is powerful. And I just want to talk about what that was like for you a little bit. Because as you were sharing that, I was tearing up. Um, because it hits this very real fear i think for a lot of gay people that were somehow defective or that were somehow not lovable or were somehow um you know we're different and and we're not going to be okay um, that message is often sent whether it's by others or by ourselves and so let's just talk a little bit about what that experience was like with you uh when he shared that it was first of all it was not expected you know i would mm -hmm. often be honest. At that point in my life, I was all about being transparent to scare people away. I wanted to walk mm. on because I was so accustomed to that. And I'll get you before you get me. Yes. Yes. And, and, and so to hear him say, I don't care. I didn't know, but I don't care. Uh, was, was very powerful for me. Now I will say this, this generation, man, the last, 10 years, I've heard a lot of apologies. I've heard a lot of people say, Samson, sorry for what we said to you. Sorry for how we treated you. Uh, I've had pastors that, that I've known in the past, you know, that, that have said those kinds of words to me. Uh, a pastor that I knew when I was in college, I mean, finally he found out uh, that I was gay. And his immediate response was, Samson, I wish you could have felt open enough to tell me that, you know. Um, and so, so in the last five to ten years, things have been a lot different, you know, or uh, becoming different. Um, I would say there's there's still some difficulty. Uh, very honestly. Um, did you ever get an apology from your mom or your dad or the deacon? No, um, no. And in fact, my my dad, I was I was going to confront him on his deathbed, and he pretended he didn't know. Me. I was the one child he pretended he didn't know. So the last thing I heard him say is, "I don't know who that is." So my mom, she was just never 
what an asshole. <laughs> about internet, you know? Uh, so there was just no real reason to confront. Uh, the deacon, I've never known exactly who that was. All I see are his hands. That's, that's the only recollection. I, I, I've never seen a face. Oh, I can't recall of a face. Yeah. And that's very common. And that was another big step, too, in my recovery, my personal recovery, was choosing to forgive, even though the whole closure thing was never real. You know, I, I, I sure appreciate psychiatry, but I still think even in psychiatry, there are terms that are too Disney. Closure is one of those. Closure is just not a real thing. And no. You know, you just have to make a choice of what you're going to do when you don't get that closure, when you don't get that person to admit, even when you're trying to appropriately confront. Uh, this is my life. Andrew J. Latchison Sr. and what he did shouldn't impede my ability to continue on because he refused, to be honest. You know, um, so I think that that even in the world of psychiatry, I mean, something we really need to be careful of. And, and uh, that's something I try as best I can to help other kids that are abused. You may never get closure. You may never get the abuser to be honest and forthright and admit what they did was wrong. You have to, for your sake, release, forgive, whatever term, terminology you want to use. For yourself, you have to let it go. Yeah, Samson. So that you just mentioned something about whenever you speak to kids that maybe have gone through similar situations or have been abused. Um, what are you doing these days? Um, as far as that goes, or as a job, or just just in general, like because it sounds like I mean, you get an opportunity to like do ministry or get to help kids or something like that or just yeah. just in general too i'm just curious i'm just curious you know what, what are you what are you doing with your life well i'm still a barista at the coffee house potter's house but at the same time at potter's house we get to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one. uh some would call it discipleship some would call it mentoring and we get to do bible studies which man my background and steve the gentleman i mentioned to you earlier our backgrounds are very different from the the classical Christian backgrounds. And so we try to implement as much as we can in real life into this new generation of who we believe Jesus is. Um, and then I, I volunteer at a, a facility for youth called Lakeland Behavioral Health. I worked there for about 17 years in all. And then um, about seven, eight years ago, they let go of all of us old dogs. So on the day they released us, I raised my hand and asked if I could volunteer as chaplain. So on weekends, when we're not in a pandemic, I, I would I go to Lakeland and I do chapel for about six different units. And can yeah, we just so be really quick be, um, for those who don't know Lakeland Behavioral Health? I mean, those um, that's a tough that's a tough crowd. Um, these kids are, are, are going through a really hard time. And so uh, that's a job that I wouldn't probably do because I think it would be too difficult. 
um, personally. And so the fact that you do that, uh, that you did that for so long, so I'm saying now that you're a chaplain and really it sounds like making a connection with these kids and really helping them. I, I, it's, I think it's incredible. Oh, I've, I loved it. They've, they've given more to me than I think I've given to them. And also, I mean, a few years ago when I was working there, they're watching them be honest about their abuse really kind of helped me. Uh, mm-hmm. It really did. So, mm-hmm. just wondering, you mentioned the pandemic too. Um, so, does the Putters House have an online presence then? Are you guys able to continue to like keep in contact with like some of the relationships that you're making there? Um, or we do calls and texting, and, and we're going to do some, some things online pretty soon. But man, I, I think it, it's great we have technology. But I think people are just over Zoomed right now. <laughs> 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 I, I think so. I, I've been doing a lot of calling and texting and, and that kind of thing just individually, you know, as much as I can with those that I have connections with, you know, to just maintain that. Because, um, yeah, everybody's going live every day, every hour of the day. So I, I'm trying to keep it as personal as I can right now. With Absolutely. Well, Samson, you know, I think that this has been an incredible story and I'm so thankful that you shared it with us. And for, for anybody that might be listening, who's struggling with what you've gone through, what is an advice? Like what, what is something you would tell them? Um, Cause it's difficult. I mean, there's, there's no way that this can be easy. Right. So as yeah. a veteran of this situation, how would you steer them? Like what's your advice for them? I just feel as if everyone has someone in their life that that they know they can trust, that that has in times past given them the idea that I'm here, you know. Um, and I would and, and I would just say this: my problem was there were people that were willing to. Uh, listen, I just wasn't as willing to open the door. And so I, my, my first uh, piece of advice would just be to, if you see that person who's been consistent in your life, that you have history with, that's inviting you to open, you have nothing to lose. I mean, it, it's be free. Free yourself by just, uh, first of all, Allowing them to extend love and acceptance to you, you know. Um, I, number two, I just, I just really would uh, avoid isolating during this time in particular, um, because this is a time where people are spending a lot of time. On them. Yeah, and and some of that it can be good because in those alone moments, heck yeah, you got to deal with you. You know, and I, I, I know as in my life, I have kept myself preoccupied many times to avoid dealing with the real stuff. And so, yeah, so there's that time. But, but man, it, 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 you got to avoid isolating. Um, I would also encourage people to give faith a chance. And, and what I mean by faith, I'm not talking about listening to, uh, a live church session. That would be great. That's great and everything. But, but 
I would really try. I would really try because you again have those alone moments to open the door of conversation with God. And I am serious. Be real. You know, Psalms 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why the freak do we think we always have to say our father? You know, why can't we just say what we see? If Jesus said Psalms 22 on the cross, by the way, you know, why can't we just get real with how we actually feel with God and say whatever we need to say? I mean, I, I think prayer has to be a conversation. Prayer has to be dialogue or it's nothing at all, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, I would say this is a, a great opportunity. And lastly, I would say forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Set yourself free from shame. Set yourself free from blame. Um, these are the ways to, to freedom. But these are just the beginning steps. But the things I just mentioned were the most important things to me. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was powerful. And... Um, again, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, this, this was a valuable conversation. Well, thank you guys for letting me seriously. I really appreciate it. Yes, yeah, Samson, it's been a pleasure. Really hey. has. Thanks for being uh, open and honest and take care of yourself, man. Thank you. And, uh, good luck with Potter's house and, um, and good luck with Lakeland. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay six feet away from each other. (laughs) Later. (laughs) If you can. And wrap. Wow. Samson's story was heavy at times, and I was not prepared in the least for some of the things that came out during his story. Um, you can hear mine and Chris's reactions as things went on. If you need to process anything you heard, you know, would like somebody to talk to, please uh, reach out to Fade to Gray on any of our social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the socials, or join our Patreon. You know, For as little as $5 a month, we have a Marco Polo group. It's really a community, a family. You know, talks daily. It's a lot of fun. Good group of people. Please come. Feel free to process with us. We'd love to have you. If you like the podcast, but you can't support financially right now, that's okay too. We would love for you to go to your iTunes or Podbean app and give us a five-star like and review. That would help out a lot getting us more recognizable in the feeds. So thank you very much for listening and have a great week. Later. Later.